famous quote by Mark Twain is that if you eat a live frog every morning, nothing worse can happen the rest of the day. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I am joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm well. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. We're uh, we're in the middle of a uh, plumbing redo in the house. They're taking all the polybutylene pipe out currently, and all the walls and some of the ceilings, well, not all the walls, but a substantial number of the walls and parts of the ceiling are all cut up and in pieces at the moment. So uh, hopefully that will be done this week and then we'll have at least a semi-functioning house back. That That's our hope. Oh man. Yeah. That sounds like a huge project right there. That's, oh man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the way it works is if you pay somebody enough money, they'll do that to your house. <laughs> So you could do the demo part of it though, right? If you need to like take down a wall, you know, just get get some frustration out, just get the sledgehammer. Demo day is fun. The rest of it, no. Like that that is actually work, right? Getting yanking out the plumbing yeah. and putting it. No, that's that's technical. That's mm-mm. but destroying yeah. things, that's at least fun. You could do that part. I could I could destroy things. That that's true. I have at least that skill set. Certainly um actually replacing Plumbing, uh, I have no business even attempting to do that. I have no such skills. Um, I really would be uh, probably fired from the workplace if I was on a construction crew. If they just like drop me into a construction crew tomorrow, it would take maybe five minutes before they realized I don't know how to do anything (laughs) and I cannot be taught. And then they would just let me go. (laughs) Plumbing is where that's, I feel like that's the game changer. So we've had uh, the only like, plumbing-ish, I guess, ish, water issue we've had in our house. So our dog loves to go in the pool all the time, especially during the summer. And he runs soaking wet into the house through the doggy door. And we never realized our doggy door wasn't perfectly sealed. And so all the water got in there. And one day we noticed and we started pulling out drywall. It was just mold for like big three foot area. And we thought, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Do we get like a big old company to come in here? How much is that going to cost? And and then we realized there was some piping right in that area. So we're like, oh my goodness, is, is the plumbing involved? And that, that was going to be our cutoff point. If plumbing was involved, my husband's like, nope, I don't want to have anything to do with this. If it's just drywall, YouTube and Google will get us through the day. And luckily that was all it is. And YouTube just it fixed it for us. Wow. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. <laughs> that that went well beyond what I would have been willing to do. I think my wife would have been willing to do the YouTube and Google thing, but she also has probably more industry in that area than I do or tolerance for it. <laughs> so it's a character flaw. I get it. <laughs> it's just all a matter of how many trips to Home Depot are you going to make? Are you going to make like five trips to Home Depot in one day? Mm-hmm. Or do you just want to pay someone to get it all over with? And they could do it right. And they could do it a lot faster too, right? Us, it would take like a whole weekend. So a professional can get it done probably like two hours. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's why I say it. it turns out I, I have discovered that if you pay someone enough money, they'll just do all this stuff for you. And uh, so... They're very happy for me to part with my money. I don't know how happy I am to part with my money, but to save myself that hassle, uh, I guess it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of uh, things that drive you crazy, uh, I thought that today we could talk about mindfulness and really mindfulness in the context of practicing law. I didn't think there'd be anybody better to do that with than our good friend, Matt Schmidt. Uh, Matt, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, and with regard to the demo project, I just yeah. bought a telethon. Um, I think one of the genre of classes they could do is demo work. So you could grab your sledgehammer. The instructor could guide you through like a 15-minute demo or a 30-minute demo. You just go to work. I love that idea. <laughs> yeah. The, Pel- the Peloton of demo. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So Peloton, I don't know if either of you have one. I think it's amazing but they have different kind of classes they have cycling meditation uh yoga boot camp so they could just add a category demo home demo work and they could lead Mm -hmm. you through you know sledgehammering your walls for 
an hour. Yeah. How would they how would they connect the sledgehammer to the internet is what I would want to know. Is <laughs> would there be a way would it have a little wireless receiver in it or would you have to actually like plug it into like a USB drive or something? Well Peloton has all kinds of accessories you can buy. So maybe you <laughs> should have like a sledgehammer component. <laughs> I'm sure it's you know, if if they don't have it yet, I'm sure they're they're on the case right now <laughs> as we speak. Well, for the for the few people, Matt, who don't know who you are, why don't you give us at least the uh, thirty thousand foot CV? Yeah, sure. I uh, graduated at U of A Law and actually undergrad as well. Um, I work at Schmidt Stethianak Majan. We we specialize in complex personal injury law, so we do a lot of medical malpractice, products liability. Um, we see the government a lot. Um, car crashes, trucking accidents, that kind of thing. And throughout my career, I've kind of developed special interest in wellness and stress management because it has helped me significantly in, in surviving this career that we all shared together. Yeah, amen, amen to that. Um, well, uh, why don't we start there then? Because I think, uh, start at the beginning, because I think uh, for all of us, that's probably uh, a, in a relatively recent past. I don't want to, I don't want to paint with too broad a stroke, but relatively recent past for uh, most of us that we were actually in law school and then getting into the profession. So maybe we should start there. Like, you know, what do they actually teach you in law school? What's right? What's actually totally wrong? And then what, what do they just ignore for some reason? Sure. So I, I guess I'll start. Um, so for I, I actually taught a class at the U of A regarding the practical aspects of law that they don't teach you in law school. And I know Rachel, she's a little newer out of uh, school. So maybe things have changed. Maybe things haven't changed at all. But when I was in law school, I felt like the school did a very good job of teaching us how to think like a lawyer. So analytical skills, uh, complex thinking, seeing both sides of the picture. Uh, didn't do a whole heck of a lot in teaching me how to actually be a lawyer. So when I was thrown out into the field, I still kind of felt like I didn't know what I was doing. Um, the, the other the other thing I wanted to mention is I think in learning about wellness, I think school in general, in any category of field you want to go into, uh, school kind of sets you up for failure in the sense that um, throughout each grade, you get long periods of break. So you get summer break, you get winter break, you get spring break, rodeo break. And these breaks are anywhere from uh, week long to three months long. So you, after each period of each grade that you go through, you get to hit the reset button. You get to actually completely uh, take yourself away from what you were doing, relax, press the pause button, and then resume into the next chapter in your life. But when you get out of law school and you're thrown into becoming a lawyer or a doctor or whatever career you end up wanting to do, you learn very quickly that uh, there are really not as many breaks. And it becomes, whereas school is kind of like doing a bunch of sprints and then taking a rest, you're kind of thrown into this marathon. And the challenge is kind of learning to pace yourself so that you can complete the marathon and not burn out. So that that's kind of what I learned about how school, what school did not prepare me for. I say that's accurate. I, I definitely have that same sentiment, Matt. I think, I, I know now the school, the U of A law school is teaching a practical course. Our good friend, Amanda Bynum is, is or was teaching that class. So that is a much needed class, definitely for sure. And, you know, just letting students know, like for one, just even like, how do you apply for jobs and, you know, like getting your resume together or things like that. I mean, that's just one thing that needs to be taught. But yeah, I definitely agree that in terms of just preparing you for the legal field itself, law school definitely teaches you how to think like a lawyer, right? And you need that. That I mean, that's the basis of everything that we do is, you know, issue spotting. If a client comes to you and they tell you their story, this 10 minute long story, you can already see now what the potential issues are and you can now take steps to help address those issues. So, I mean, that's absolutely needed. You need it to pass the bar. Okay. But I think there also does need to be that additional, how do you actually be a lawyer? Um, and I think, you know, while even you're in school, you know, there's, there's clinic programs where you get the real life experience during your summers, like you're saying, in the breaks, you're doing externships, you've got summer associate posi positions, you name it. But I don't feel like it's still the real thing. You know, you're not a real, you're not filing things in court. You don't have your name on the pleadings. Um, you're not uh, going into a hearing and, and speaking to the judge. 
And so I think there is just that little bit of difference there where once you're let out into the real world as an attorney, it's, oh gosh, how do I actually do this job and, and not mess up and not, not create malpractice? Um, so I think there's definitely a little bit of lag there. And then to, to your point on the wellness side, I agree with you. It's, you know, in law school, you think everyone who goes to law school is already the overachiever, right? And in law school, you have to compete to get an A. Not everyone can get an A. You're literally competing against your classmates for grades. So, of course, everyone's going to be competitive. Everyone's going to try and do as much as they can. Um, no one's going to try and self-sabotage, at least at U of A Law. Everyone's friends. There's no self-sabotage there. But Still, it's it's you're just you always have that competitive aspect. I have to do more. I have to do more because I have to get the top of the class. So then I can get onto the, the perfect journal. Then I can get the perfect job and then I can get the job offer. And it's just one step after another. And unless you like you're saying, really pace yourself or find something that can take you away from that, it's going to start bringing you down at one point or another. Yeah, and I, there's not a lot of useful resources, I think, uh, in a lot of ways to prepare somebody for, I mean, surviving law school and then, of course, making a transition into the practice of law. So, so for example, you know, you're talking about like uh, in law school competing against each other and, and, you know, I think people going into law school, they see movies like Legally Blonde and stuff where it's like, you know, she's struggling, but then she's in class halfway through the semester and she's like answering questions right and everybody's like wow she's doing great yeah in law school that's not the measure nobody cares about your performance in class like it's you take one test at the end of the semester if you nail that test then you nailed the class you won uh that's it everything else is just sort of fluff uh but the so there's you sort of get run through that grinder kind of to matt's point you get run through that grinder but then when you get put into practice there's there's something a little bit different in this sense that once you get put into practice, it's not that there's a test at the end of the semester that is the thing that determines whether you did well. It's that literally every little thing that is in front of you is the test, is the thing that must be done well, because if it gets done incorrectly, you know, your employer could be upset, your supervisor could be upset with you, the court could be upset with you, your client certainly could be upset with you, there could be malpractice issues. So like it, like the, 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 the stakes ratchet up a lot, but then there's not an equivalent ratcheting up of things like Matt is describing of like being able to handle and, and understanding how to mentally like pace yourself so you could handle those stresses. Yeah, I think when I first got out of law school, I going along the school mentality, I think my, my goal was like to try and get rid of the pile of paper on my desk because I thought like I was anticipating that break that my mind thought was coming that was not going to come. And when I would get close to getting to the bottom of that paper, those that pile of papers, it was like a, no, a new stack would come and then another one and then another one. And I, I don't remember how long it took me to realize, but, you know, I, I came to the conclusion that that stack is never going away until I retire. And I'm just going to have to suck it up and do a good job instead of trying to race to the finish, you know, take my time, pace myself, do a good job on each task because that pile not going away. Um, and I've, you know, I've been a lawyer for over 10 years now and the pile's still there. And then and 10 years from now, it's still going to be there. So it takes a long time to adjust to that mentality, I think. I couldn't agree more. Okay, so that was one thing I really struggled with as a new attorney. I am very much the, the, the Gallup strength test, an achiever. I have to have checklists. I like to check things off. So for me, like I had a running checklist. And like you're saying, it just kept getting longer and longer and the achiever in me was dying inside because I wasn't able to check enough of these off. I wanted it to be done at end of each day. And it's always going to be continuously going. And I think it took me probably about a year into my practice where I realized that long list of things to do, that's a good thing, right? When, when the list is gone, that means we don't have any work. So that's not a good thing. So the longer the list, the good, you know, that means obviously you're, you're doing a lot of work for your client. You've got more matters coming in and you just have to realize, okay, based on that list, then how do I prioritize, you know, do you have deadlines, things like that. But it's definitely is really hard, you know, for someone coming in, like you said, you know, with Brent in, in law school, you just have that one test. That's it. You don't have homework assignments. You don't have to do anything. You just you do your reading. You prepare the whole entire semester, and then you have a test at the end of the year. 
Whereas real life practice, it's constantly just a series of little tasks. And it's whether you're in transactional or you're in litigation, if there's you know a pleading you need to file in court, there's a hearing, or for us, if we're drafting a trust, a will, whatever it may be for a client, it's just a whole bunch of series of little things. And so it's really taking that time to carefully look at each project as its own little test. And that's really kind of how you just have to, for, for me, at least that's how I've kind of look at it now. Yeah. One other thing that I, that I was thinking about and that I actually have, have thought about a lot in the past is if you think about, you know, we were talking about the way that law school prepares law students to be a lawyer, which is essentially to think like a lawyer. It's not actually to do the like substantive work, but it's just to think like a lawyer. There's like that's only even even let's just assume that you know hypothetically that law school did a bunch of preparation and taught people how to do the substantive work of law okay so now you know how to think like a lawyer and you know how to do the substantive work of law if they did those two things although probably an improvement based on what we're describing it still would be an incomplete picture because there's still this whole other sort of like personal human side to practicing that sort of goes unaddressed. And it, I think it goes unaddressed in two different uh, areas. I'm curious to hear from the two of you whether you think this is accurate or not. Uh, number one, I think that the law schools tend to ignore sort of the the mental well-being mindfulness side, which I think we're going to get into in a little more depth here. And number two, just the financial burden of being a professional and working and making money, and in most cases, trying to pay back student loans. And they do a very bad job. I mean, they almost ignore the issue entirely. Like they don't want to talk, they don't want to think about it because you know the numbers are too big and scary. Um, but that goes totally unaddressed. And those two elements together are, you know, just being a practitioner, having the stress of having clients employers, et cetera, and then sort of the financial side of essentially being in business and trying to pay off student loans and just living life create so much hardship, personal hardship that just goes unattended for to uh, in law school. And I think that's a real miss for law schools. Yeah, I completely agree. I think in, so when I first started law school, I thought I was living off of loans, right? Pretty much everyone is. And at that point, I thought, oh, my gosh, I have to eat ramen every single day, right? Because I don't I don't want to have six figure debt when I get out of law school. And then I realized about a month into it, I'm not eating ramen for three years straight. OK, I got to at least somewhat enjoy my life while I'm in law school. But to your point, when I remember when I graduated, then three years later, I think our very first meeting about hey, you guys are going to have those student loans come and do. Here's, you know, here, let's talk about repayment plans. I think that happened about a month before graduation. And that's when it gets really real, really fast. When you see the amount of, of loans that you've taken out, and then you start calculating how much you have to pay each month, the interest, that's, uh, and that then causes you to stress and drink. And that's a whole other part of the issues of mindfulness, right? But it's, it's, realizing at the very first stage of law school, just putting it in, in, I think, the students' minds so that when you're out of practice, it doesn't come as such a shock to you. Everything's at least you're understanding it as you go. So then, you know, you're a little bit, a little bit better prepared to handle it at that moment. Yeah. On the financial side, I saw a great documentary on ESPN called Broke, and it was about how athletes, you know, they go to, they go pro and then they don't know they haven't been educated on how to how to manage their finances and then they blow through the finances and they're and at their age they're broke by like 30 and but i don't know i think the analogy kind of can apply to almost any profession um you know the law school does not educate law students on how to finance or manage their finances how to or if you're going to start your own law firm how to manage your own business um and part of the takeaway from that documentary was that some programs are starting to have uh, financial classes and stuff to teach athletes how to manage your finances and how to do all those things. I don't think it would be a bad idea for law schools to implement the same kind of uh, option. You know, if maybe a if a, a maybe a class for people who are interested in starting their own law firm or who want to know more about the financial aspect of it. Um, on the mental side of things, um, I do think it's getting better. I, I mean, I know Amanda Bynum really well. She, this is the second podcast I've been on. She was the first one I was on, and we talked about wellness. Um, law schools are starting to implement programs about mindfulness and stress management. I think they're doing a 
a better job, I think they could do even better. Um, because in modern society, and especially with the younger generations, I think we're going to see an increase, uh, unfortunately, in depression, anxiety, uh, stress, and substance abuse. Because I think the demands of society are, are getting harder and harder for all of us to keep up with. The expectations are set way too high. Um, so I, I do think schools need to start taking this very seriously and preparing students for the long haul. Well, I think when you look at most measures, the the legal field scores poorly uh, or high, uh, which is not a good thing, in measures of things like depression and anxiety and and substance abuse. And you know, I think we've identified some of the root causes of those. You know, there's a lot of stressors that go along with with being in practice and being answerable to many different parties. Um, and being being answerable in, in meaningful ways. And then also having a profession that, you know, let's be frank, is not necessarily always the most highly regarded um, in society. And I think a lot of those things in combination can lead to just a lot of kind of mental health issues among practitioners. So it's, yeah, I think it's good that the law schools are starting to address it. I think it's, it's critical that they arm students with the tools that they need to really kind of start to bring those numbers down and just figure out how people can on an individual basis manage to to do the profession which i mean in my humble opinion is a very noble profession to be in but you got to be able to do it in a way that's healthy for you I mean, if it wasn't healthy for a person it wouldn't wouldn't be very noble at all yeah i think you know it's it's literally one of those things and I, I read that study i think we're like in the top five professions of you know it's like one of those look to your left look to your right one of you is going to be a train wreck deal um and it's unfortunate but it's it's just what it's partly because of what we do for a living so first of all i mean we live in a negative environment we're constantly thinking of the counter argument or the we're competing against each other. Sometimes we deal with very complicated lawyers on the other side. Uh, sometimes we deal with very difficult clients who are going through oftentimes some of the worst experiences of their life. There's a lot of pressure on you to do a good job and to win, uh, sometimes involving things that are completely out of your control. Uh, so overall, it's, I mean, the stress is real. And so learning how to manage that stress is something that, again, I've been like learning and teaching. It's something that I think hopefully uh, in the future that law schools will do a better job of addressing. Yeah, I think so. I was at a CLE um, presentation pre-pandemic and it was all about mindfulness and, and attorney wellness. And I heard a statistic that said one in three attorneys have a drinking problem. And this is while we were at a networking event. So I'd say 90% of the people had a you know glass of alcohol in their hand and were drinking. And, and I think a lot of people were cheering to that statistic. And I think a lot of attorneys, even in law school, they, you know, they really stress on how, you know, depression, substance abuse, these are major issues that our industry is facing. So you just need to be aware of it. And I think that's just where the conversation ended. But it's okay, well, yes, we are aware of it. Yes, we're aware they're entering a very stressful career. But what can we do about it? And I think that's really where there needs to be the change of implementing wellness programs, whether that's in a workplace, while you're in law school, wherever it may be, and really stick to it. You know, if that's, you know, during your lunch break, you get out of your office and you take a walk for 30 minutes, you jump on the Peloton for 30 minutes. I did that today. Whatever it may be, just to get out of that mindset for a little bit, get some fresh air, you know, just take a step back from what you're doing and then you know, that helps kind of rejuvenate you a little bit and then you can get through the rest of your day. Yeah, let's well, let's get into that because you, you, Rachel, I think just teed that up very nicely, which is sort of we've I think we've uh, we've got the law school issues tied in, in a bow pretty well. Uh, and I think we've framed the issue for the profession. But then maybe, you know, let's let's focus a little bit on the practical stuff like, you know, Rachel, you're suggesting being being able to take breaks during the day to get these little micro resets, at least mentally kind of micro resets like like Matt, you were talking about at the beginning. Yeah. So uh, I guess the studies and studies show that actually you should try and take a break every 50 minutes. And it, I'm not saying like take a break and go binge watch, uh, you know, friends or something, but even just taking a break for a few minutes to kind of re to reset 
and then moving back into whatever you were dealing with. One thing I like to do actually, like I time block every 30 minutes um, and there's no really rhyme or reason to it. I think it just kind of depends on who you are. But I literally like to like every half hour, I like to write down what I plan to do at least. Um, it does almost never ends up working out exactly the way I have it. But the fact that I have a plan, uh, just my mind just feels more comfortable when I know that I've already made the choice before it's going to happen. And I can always just readjust if it doesn't. But a lot of the literature does indicate that taking a break is very healthy. Um, if not, fifth, I know that, you know, we write motion. Sometimes you're in the zone. You don't even realize an hour has gone by. But when you feel like a lot of times when you're when you're writing the motion and you feel like you need to go get to the bathroom or you need to stand up and go get something to eat, it's because your mind's telling you you need to take a quick break and then go back to it. Yeah. So I had heard a really good quote a, a few weeks ago where it was more of like an analogy, actually, I can't say the quote perfectly, but the analogy was basically, you know, we are, think of us as, as like our cell phone batteries, right? You're going to start at hundred percent when you wake up in the morning, you're, you know, nice and charged. And then as the day goes by, your battery's slowly going to drain. Certain projects are going to drain you faster than others. And, you know, most people, when you think about lunchtime, all right, I'm really busy. I just need to work through lunch. Uh, I, I can get, you know, my projects done faster and then I'll be able to maybe leave like an hour early and then I can work out, you know, take time for myself. And of course that never happens, right? You work through lunch and then something else had popped up and now you're at the office two hours later and still you're just plugging away and your battery is now super, super low. And so for me, one thing I've realized is, you know, most clients realize you've got that lunchtime block. And I've noticed you don't really get a lot of phone calls during that time. So that really is the time if you can, you know, if there's no, you know, emergencies, nothing urgent, really pressing to take that time for yourself to, you know, do whatever it is to kind of recharge yourself and really just re almost keeping that as like a, a meeting to yourself you know, put it on the calendar when 12 o'clock comes, all right, you're going to log off real quick for 30 minutes, an hour, whatever it may be, you can come back to it. And then typically, like I was saying earlier, you're, you usually feel pretty recharged after that. And then you're going to tackle the afternoon a lot better than you would have if you had just gone straight through. A famous quote by Mark Twain is that if you eat a live frog every morning, nothing worse can happen the rest of the day. Um, one of the things I teach, it, I actually have like the five elements of wellness that I've learned over reading a lot of books and seeing that the same recurring themes come up over and over again. I'll just I'll just list them real quick and then I'll talk about the live frog thing. But the first one is having is recognizing what you have control over and what you don't have control over and ignoring what you don't have control over and focusing on what you have control over. Uh, the second one is having more awareness about your surroundings so that you can identify the neg negative anchors. You can either ignore those or learn how to flip those into positives. I know Rachel was talking about awareness and how that's about as far as you guys got um, was being aware of the fact that we live in a negative environment. Uh, but being able to identify the negativity and refocus is, is a part of that. Uh, limiting your choices by making the choices before you have to make them. Uh, having focus or being active instead of being lost and worried inside your mind, um, which actually worries is actually a good thing. I can go into that if, if we get into that. And then community involvement. Um, just we're social beings. It's part of why COVID right now is so stressful for everybody because we want to be with our family and our friends. We want to interact the way that we used to. And hopefully the lights at the end of the tunnel, we might be get, getting back to that. But being, uh, being involved in the community is also a big element of stress relief. Um, but back to the frog analogy, what Mark Twain was referring to is, like Rachel said, your battery is most full in the morning. So if you can get the willpower to tackle something big first thing or closest to first thing in the morning as you can, uh, the rest of the day is going to go super smoothly. And like Rachel said, if you don't tackle that, if you don't eat that frog, um, the frog is going to sit there probably the rest of the day and it's probably going to be there again in the morning. So um, try and tackle something big first thing in the morning and then things you'll, you'll gain some momentum and things will go very well. 
Yeah, I, I like that. And I like the the idea of, of trying first and foremost to recognize things that you can control and ignore the things that you can't control. Because I think a lot of times stress can can arise when you are are occupied with things that you can't control or you're spending too much time worrying and stressing on things that are outside of your control and i think at least for me kind of mentally it's always very uh it's always very tantalizing to do that because it's never ending right because i can't control it so therefore the worry is constant and i could worry about it forever and always and always and always because I can't control the outcome. And so there's always a concern. Whereas with things that I can control, I can actually, I can actually work on them um, and I can complete them. And then I don't have to worry about them anymore because they're done. So uh, I know for me, certainly from my experience, that element is is critical and i know for me like my my tendency when i'm stressed is to try to do nothing my you know my brain wants to sort of cycle on the things that i can't control and then that and then that stops me from doing the things that i can control and i have to be very cognizant of that tendency and then to, to refocus on no no no. i got to focus on this thing that i need to do it's a task that can be done that i will do that and i will not worry about the thing that is outside of that ambit so Matt, you said earlier that the being worried is a good thing. I, I would like to hear more of that because Brett and I joke all the time. We're, we're little, you know, nervous lawyers. We're worried lawyers, and as lawyers, I guess it's good, right? You want to be worried, right? If, if you're feeling cool, calm, and collect all the time, hmm, it's a little that that's a little worrisome. Um, and especially in our practice, you know, we, we deal with the IRS all the time. And, you know, a lot of major tax issues. You should be really worried when you've got tens of millions of dollars on the line. Um, but to Brent's point that, you know, when you're obsessed with worrying about something that's out of your control, it can, that stress really plays a factor on you. So I'd love to hear more about how that is a good thing. Yeah. So this is a fairly, uh, this is a fascinating topic to me. And usually when I give my like half day seminars on this stuff, uh, I spend probably about a half hour on this topic, but the kind of cliff notes version is that, you know, we, this all links back to our genetic uh, desire to survive. Um, and, and even in modern life, I mean, when we go back to law school, we think if we fail the test, our mind is kind of unconsciously telling us that we're going to die if we fail. So, or, you know, Brent's going to get the better job with a nicer car and I'm going to be a failure and I'm going to be lower on the food chain than Brent. So I got to, I got to beat him and Rachel at what we do for a living. And, and it, it's, it's all about survival at the end of the day. So we worry because our mind is actually processing the worst case scenarios because it wants us to be prepared for how to tackle that scenario if and when it does happen. Now, we don't worry about winning the trial or we don't worry about getting a multi-million dollar verdict because our mind doesn't care about that kind of stuff. Uh, our mind cares about what's going to happen if you lose or you, you get fired because this motion is not good enough or you don't meet the deadline. Um, your mind's kind of acting like a poker player by trying to process the different scenarios and try and figure out which one is the best one. And the way that it does that is by actually focusing on the worst case scenarios. Um, so stress is a good thing because our mind is actually preparing us for adversity. Uh, the other thing, stress is also a good thing because we are overachievers and we do work very hard. Stress simply means that we care about what we're doing. Um, if you think about it, when you're not stressed, it means you don't really care. Um, it's not a big deal or whatever. When you're stressed out about something, it means you sincerely care about it. You wanna do a good job for your client. You want the jury or the judge to make the right ruling. Um, so a lot of times when I'm stressed out, I try and reframe it as, oh, I, I just really deeply care about this um, and that's okay. So next time you're stressed out, try and think of it that way. <laughs> I guess it, it's a genetic thing. It's not going away. Uh, we're we're linked to it because we want to live. Well, that's yeah, that's a really interesting observation. It's that that lower brain response, right? It's that that uh, kind of what Seth Godin would call the the lizard brain response uh, of the brain, which obviously is there for a reason because the oldest part of our brain. Um, and it's been there for a very, very long time. It obviously serves a critical purpose for us and surviving, um, but it can short circuit you as well because it can get you focusing on things that are the negative outcome, not the positive outcome and focusing on 
the worst case scenario rather than on the process of getting to whatever the outcome is going to be in the future that may be out of your control. And and I, yeah, maybe uh, somewhat clumsily, that's uh, somewhat what I was trying to describe for myself, just only speaking for me, because I know for everybody it's a little bit differently, or it, it happens a little differently, but, you know, only speaking for myself that that's, I know for myself, my lower brain response is lock up, do nothing because I'm, you know, I'm worried about the worst case scenario. Well, the worst case scenario can't happen if nothing happens, right? If I don't do it, if I don't, if I don't act, there's no conclusion. And therefore the worst case scenario can't, can't conclude. And my, I know my lower brain response is that way. Uh, and I've, I used to be very frustrated by that. And early in my, earlier in my career, that just that response itself was stressful to me. Um, but I've learned to sort of recognize that in myself and recognize like when it's happening and that like, it's okay. Like that's just, that's just my body kind of naturally having that little impulse reaction. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing to your point, Matt, it's more that I think my brain is telling me like, this is important. That's why we're having this response because it's important. So you need to focus in on it so you can, you know, do the best thing that you can do, understand that there are elements that you can't control, but just, you know, then that means it's important. You need to focus in on the piece that you can control. So that's the, at least for me, I've, I've learned that that's kind of the way my brain works uh, very much in line with what you're describing. Yeah, and, and I guess to add complexity to that, um, you know, as cavemen, we were only really structured to worry about immediate and acute things so you know it was like we need water shelter and not and don't die and food and those were like those were the things and if you got by the day with those things you were fine um but over time modern society has created what we call chronic worry which is where we're overwhelmed about all kinds of things all the time i think part of why we worry too is because we're when we're worrying we're not actually doing it you know, we're not doing what it is that we need. We're procrastinating and we know we're procrastinating. So we worry about the fact that the best case scenario is not getting done because we're not doing what needs to be done to accomplish it. So I think that's another element of stress management is to, is one that worry is okay. Chronic worry, you, you should probably be a little concerned if you start to chronically worry and stress. Um, but kind of remind yourself, okay, I'm worrying. What can I do about? It? Let's focus. What can I do about it right now? And I think I think a lot of us we find that procrastination is a very common thing in our in our industry. But I think when you actually find yourself doing the work, you kind of get lost in it. You start developing a flow, um, and it becomes enjoyable because it's challenging once you actually jumpstart into doing it. What it is that you were worrying about. So one of the challenges is kind of creating methods and strategies to get into the into the flow and to because it takes a lot of energy to get into that but it's about getting into it that i think is is one of the challenges that we all face yeah and i think to build off of that like as as a new attorney i think a part of the the hesitancy of getting into the flow of any you know big project or work is just the the lack of confidence right as a newer attorney you're just not as seasoned, you're, it's, you know, you're still learning how to really see all the issues, you're still understanding the law. And so there's a hesitancy of, well, if I start this project, you know, oh gosh, is it going to take me 10 hours to finish because I don't know how to do it all the way. And, and so that really kind of gets into it. And I, I know personally, I've dealt with that where it's like, okay, you know what, I'm gonna learn everyone has had to learn at some point. And so it, that's just the process of it. Um, someday I won't have to be doing all of that. Um, but it's really just, you know, getting right into it. And then for me, I think the biggest thing, you know, in, in tackling the the chronic worriness, because I, I feel like I'm a chronic worrier. I, I worry about everything in the world. Um, but I think part of that is just talking through that with, you know, whoever you're working with, your supervisors, your colleagues, if you've got mentors, you know, someone who's been through it. I think, you know, as, as a young associate, um, you know, speaking with, with other young associates, you know, is this your experience? How have you been doing it this way? Just to get a little bit more feedback, right? It's hard when you've got a partner who's been working for 10, 20 plus years, you know, they've been in the grind forever and you're just fresh out of law school. And so it's good to get differing opinions and just keep that communication flowing because I think if you don't have that communication, again, that chronic worry is, 
oh no, I'm doing it wrong. Um, I, I should be doing it a completely different way. But if once you start talking to people and you realize, oh no, this is just part of it. And this is, I'm doing it the way I should be doing it. I think that really helps kind of take that stress down a little bit. I have a little, uh, I have a little analogy to that too, by the way, which is, um, this is a lawyer analogy. So the two of you will appreciate this and maybe everybody else in the world will think it's nuts, but there's a, and Matt uh, will, I'm, I'm sure be more familiar with this maybe than Rachel, but there's a fairly classic cross-examination technique. And it's when you ask someone a question and they respond with a base, basically a response that's like, I don't know. You know, you're asking them for some amount and they just give you a quick response. I don't know. Right. They're giving you a lower brain response, a, a a response that is a worried, anxious response. And so then the way that you can handle that kind of a witness is to start, start to very slowly try to triangulate in uh, the parameters until you can sort of settle in on some range of of outcomes, you know, you know, it's like, you know, what what time of day was it? I don't know. Well, was it in the morning? No. Was it in the evening? No. OK, it was in the afternoon. Yeah. Well, would you say it was after noon or 1230? Yes. Well, would you say it was before 4 p.m.? You know, until you can kind of narrow in and 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 help the witness to come up with a more reasons response. But more of the point of the analogy is that that the worry and the that kind of like lower brain response or what I keep calling the lower brain response, sort of that stress response is, again, only really speaking for myself, the way that I try to personally diffuse it is to start to break everything down into its little pieces getting sort of towards the process and like the things that I can control. Well, if I break it down into little pieces that I can manage, then I can short circuit it. Just like when you're handling a hostile witness in that kind of scenario and you're trying to then triangulate them down into little pieces that they can manage and then you can get an actual answer out of them. It's sort of a, a technique that I use on myself uh, to handle stress. Yeah, so Brent set up another one for me to tee off here. Uh, there's a concept called the Zorro Circle, and I, I don't know if any of you have watched the movie Zorro, but and I, I actually have only watched this one scene, so I don't really know much about it, except for Zorro like, really wants to get revenge on this guy, and he wants to go out and take his sword and just start fighting. And his his teacher says, no, like we have to start in small steps. So he wants to accomplish this massive goal, and the teacher immediately like disswords him and shows him that he's got a lot to learn. So he starts with this very small circle. And then when Zorro kind of masters that small space, he increases the circle and then increases it and increases it. Um, I think to Rachel's point, one thing that we as lawyers get a little intimidated by are these huge projects. Um, oh man, I got to write this 40 page motion or what brief or whatever it is. How, how am I even going to start that? I mean, marathon runners don't just wake up one day and say, okay, I'm going to go run 26 miles. Um, and if they do, it just it's not going to happen. So one strategy um, that I use a lot is, in fact, like Brent said, is to break it down into small pieces um, and not focus less on the larger goal, but focus more on the little things. So if it's a motion, um, maybe today I'll work on legal research on one of the issues and really tackle that. And then the next day I'll work on the introduction. And then the next day I'll work on the um, argument a and breaking it down like that is actually it creates a mental response that you can actually get it done um and you start checking those boxes off slowly 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 and then suddenly you see oh my gosh uh this motion's coming along i think i'm gonna be able to tackle it um so anyway that's one strategy i use um i think a lot of the time we focus too much on getting to the top of the mountain and we don't really focus on just enjoying the climb i think as lawyers you know there's this kind of imaginary goal of reaching the top. I don't even really know what that means because whenever I get to the top of something, I'm like looking for another mountain to climb. So I think, you know, that's part of what we got to remind ourselves is there's really no top until you retire. And I know a lot of people that retire and they're bored off their mind. So um, just to enjoy the climb, I guess, is the, is the point. And enjoy it by breaking it down and taking it one step at a time. Can I ask you then, uh, which uh, I, sorry, I 100% I endorse everything you just said. I think I think that's spot on. Um, 
Can I ask you then just a little bit, uh, changing gears slightly thematically and maybe jumping out of order of your 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 five your list of five uh, techniques, but to talk about community involvement, because I'm assuming when you talk about community involvement, Matt, you meet it in a broader sense than just meeting people at a happy hour uh, after hours. I, I'm assuming that you mean it in much more texture and nuance than that. Well, I mean it in both ways. I, I, we're social beings, so I think it is really, really, and some of us are a little more isolated than others, and that, that's fine. If you enjoy being uh, a hobbit or whatever, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's, But sometimes we feel isolated and we don't enjoy it. Like Rachel said, you know, sometimes I'm a little intimidated by telling someone else about it because then they're going to think I'm a weirdo or whatever. And then uh, we, And then you do, and you're like, yeah, I go through the same thing every day. What's, what are you talking about? Um, so it is about community involvement on a very, on a minimal level, just hanging out with friends, sharing your feelings. It's okay to have a bad day and tell your friend about it. Um, it's reassuring actually a lot of time that they're going through the same thing you're going through. Uh, but then on a community level, I think it's, it's important. Um, I'm involved in a couple of nonprofits and I do that purposefully. Um, one of the big things that I teach is in every activity that you do in life, you should ask yourself why you are doing it um, to create purpose to everything you do. So I don't I, I'm not a personal injury lawyer to make money. I do it because I help people and that means something to me. And you guys you guys manage people's finances and that's very meaningful to the community. It's a big part of of what people need in society. And you guys do a very good job doing that. Um, so I ask myself why, like in everything that I do, and if I can't have, a, if I don't have a good answer, I, I re have to reevaluate whether it belongs in my life. Um, so one thing when I'm getting overwhelmed, when expectations are way too high, um, and I'm feeling stressed out, I will ask myself this question as a reminder, am I doing something that benefits myself, my friends, my family, my career? or my community, and if the answer is yes, then I cut myself a break. Um, and even if I'm taking a break, I try and like, I rationalize that too by saying that I'm doing something a little bit for myself. Um, if I can't answer that question, then I kind of tell myself, okay, well, maybe I need to focus on those five categories. But community is definitely one of them. And, and a lot of the times I find myself, when I ask myself, why am I doing this? It's because I'm a part of a bigger community. And most people you're going to find, that's a it means a lot to them. Um, so I would, in addition to um, staying in contact with your family and friends and reaching out to them and communicating with them and even having difficult conversations about what you're going through, uh, to get involved in something that means something to you to where you can you can make a meaningful impact for the, the larger community that you're in. So the short answer to your question is that I mean, I mean it in every way possible. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I figured you did, and I knowing you very well, I'm not surprised by that answer uh, in the slightest bit. But yeah, I think I think you're right. I think it's important to to connect with people, and that includes people in these circles that you're describing. You know, family, friends, other sort of acquaintances, and then it's also important to connect with people you don't know, and just people in the in the community at large, and to do things that are meaningful to you that have a positive impact in someone else's life. There was a there's a, a study and I apologize, I, I can't remember the name of uh, the researchers who did the study, but there's a study that, that that they did not not too many years ago, but they were they were trying to figure out what what causes the most sustained happiness. And so they they ran this experiment where some of the um, subjects in the experiment did things for themselves and then the others did things for other people and i think if i remember right the things that they did for other people is like write a note a thank you note take the note to the person for whom it was written and then read it to that person in person you know face to face and that was it that was all they had to do write the note take it to the person read it to them face to face and what they found was at least based on the responses of the participants in the study that the people who had done the thing for other people had a an, an extreme uh, extreme is probably the wrong clinical word, but like an extremely a noticeable increase and lasting increase in 
in reported happiness than the people who had done things just for themselves. And so I think it's, you know, based on that study, it's clinically proven that you will be just a happier person if you do things for other people. But I think just anecdotally, too, I think that's certainly true. If you can kind of get out of your little cocoon a little bit and then do things for other people, even if that's friends and family or people close to you or extend it out to people in the community that you don't know, if you're doing something for other people, that's not focused on you, you're just going to be a happier person. And that will also help with all these stresses and anxieties and things that we're talking about. There's a study, I think, I think it's from Harvard or Yale. It's one of the big ones. And they made a book about it. I think it's one of the longest studies um, ever done that they continue to do to measure happiness. They've, they've kind of followed people's lives for decades and kind of kept track of how they're doing, asking tons of questions uh, and what they have ultimately found is the number one thing that make people the most happy is having close relationships. Um, and when they ask people, when they ask the elderly people who've been involved in the study for a long time, you know, what what's your regret or what, what did you wish you did more of? It was actually spending less time doing whatever they do for work and more time with their family and friends. Because in, the, in retrospect, yes, work is important, but family and friends and community is more important. And their reflection is that they wish they had spent more time having more balance. So I think I think that goes right in line with this with the study that you you read about. I think too, it just helps you know switch things up a little bit. So for us, we, we do a lot of pro bono work, um, guardianship, conservatorship cases, some estate planning, and I just love doing that work. Like I, I just, I love, I, I did some of it today or as a client, I, I only get to really talk to once or twice a year when we're, we're doing these uh, guardianship proceedings, but it's just so fulfilling. And when you talk to the clients and, you know, these are individuals who would not be able to afford legal services otherwise, it's, it's just such a rewarding experience. And, you know, for us, we, you know, we typically deal with ultra high net worth clients on a day-to-day basis. And we love our clients. They're they're wonderful. Love doing that work. But it's just a step back to really remember, you know, who, you know, you, you don't just have ultra high net worth neighbors all around you, right? You've got normal individuals and those people need legal services as well. And they should be, they should be able to have access to all those legal services just as the individuals who can pay for it. And so for me, it's, you know, when you get to do that type of work and, you know, you see the appreciation, it just... It really makes everything you realize, all right, this is why I went to law school, right? I went to law school because I wanted to make a difference in the world. I wanted to help other people. And that really kind of just helps keep you going. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and I, I feel the same way about those clients. I, I'm really happy uh, to help them out. And uh, I get a lot of fulfillment personally um, doing that work. Well, Matt, uh, I tell you, we could chat with you about this topic uh, forever. Um because we're very interested in it and I know you're very interested in it. And so we would just probably feed off of each other until uh, we never actually got back to our families or friends or work or community. Uh, and we were just talking incessantly. So I think we'll leave it there, but uh, we very much appreciate you. Where can people find you if they're trying to find you? Well, you can go to Schmidt's Anthony Akmajian website. Some of my information's on there. I'm on Facebook. Uh, you know, and if you have any questions, if you're more interested in this stuff, I could talk about, you're right. I could talk about this stuff all day. Um, my email is m schmidt at azinjurylaw.com. So, and it's M S C H M I D T. All right. Awesome. And we'll put your contact information in the, sh- in the show notes as well. So people will uh, be able to look there to find you. Yeah. If anybody has questions or you know, they want to bounce something off Matt or they want to get pointed in the right direction for resources. Uh, Matt's Matt's a go-to person uh, on this topic. And Matt, we really appreciate you very much and all the time and uh, expertise you have lent us. So thank you again. Thank you very much for having me. It was, it was a lot of fun. Hey, listeners. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us reviews. uh, Subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.